Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wadi Wadi people who are the traditional custodians of the land we're recording on today and pay our respects to Elders past and present of the Darawal Nation. Joanne is 55 years old and has worked her whole life in the hospitality industry. Joanne has been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis. Joanne experiences pain in her knees, hips and hands and sometimes aches all over. Joanne has stopped work on the advice of her doctor and is struggling with paying rent and the costs of everyday living. She finds some days she cannot even leave her house and will spend whole days without speaking to anyone and this has left her feeling isolated and depressed. Joanne's doctor has prescribed her antidepressants and she's been seeing a psychologist for counselling for six months now. Joanne applied for the disability support pension but was rejected. Welcome to Law for Community Workers On The Go, a series of podcasts designed specifically for community workers, health workers and anyone else who works to support people in their community. This series is brought to you by the Community Legal Education Team here at Legal Aid New South Wales and our aim is to help you help your clients. So tune in whenever you can, in the car, on the train, at the gym, cooking dinner, basically wherever you already listen to podcasts. So we hope you enjoy today's episode and that you learn something new and interesting. My name is Kerry Wright. I'm here today with Liz Turnbull, who's a welfare rights lawyer with the Illawarra Legal Centre in Wollongong. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking with Liz about the disability support pension and how community workers can assist your clients like Joanne to get help if they've had their disability support pension, or DSP as we'll call it, applications rejected, or have been told by Centrelink that they are no longer eligible. But first, Liz, it'd be great if you could tell us a bit about your role as a welfare rights lawyer. What does this actually mean? Oh, thanks, Kerry. That's a really great question um, because the term welfare rights can be a bit confusing. But really, my role is very simple. My role is to basically help people who are having problems with Centrelink. Okay. So a person may have a questions or difficulty with Centrelink, that is with the social security system, and I can provide um, legal advice and information, so free legal advice and information. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, I can advocate on behalf of the person or, or represent them at the tribunal. Okay. What tribunal is that? Um, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So there's two levels of that. Okay. See, often we find that people don't necessarily think of Centrelink problems as a legal problem. Right. Um, so it's really great to be here talking to community workers to get yes. the word out there. Yeah, Fantastic. And you were telling me earlier that um, there's also now this National Social Security Rights Network. What's that? Okay, so that's actually our peak organisation. So around Australia, there are 16 community legal centres that all do um, social security law and help people with Centrelink problems. So Mm -hmm. this network is our peak organisation and they do kind of a range of things on um, behalf of all the member centres. So they provide information and education like fact sheets and webinars and um, they've got a great website they do research projects and we do policy work so writing submissions and lobbying government so they're really able to use the experience of the member centers of their clients um, and the communities to drive their policy work okay well that makes me think that um, community workers 
if they're seeing any issues, it's good to get in touch with you because you can feed that up through the network for law reform kind of projects. Yeah, absolutely. That's okay. right. Yeah. And what we'll do is we'll put a, a link to that website you were talking about where they have perhaps uh, webinars they've recorded or details when they're coming up on our homepage for this podcast. Yeah. So how long have you been in this role, Liz? Oh, well, well over 10 years now, actually. <laughs> okay, well, that's excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got a background in social work and law, um, and, and I do this role part-time, and as, as many people do, balance that with parenting responsibilities as well, and, and I'm in the job share. Okay. Um, but it, it is an area that I really enjoy working in. There's mm. always lots of changes to the law and policy right. um, to keep you on your toes, and <laughs> I get to be involved in working with clients, um, yeah, as well as, you know, doing things like community legal education, um, such as workshops and also that policy work with the mm-hmm. National Social Security Rights Network. Okay, so let's go back to Joanne, who we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Liz has told me that their legal advice services are increasingly dominated by clients in a situation like Joanne. Let's hear why. If we go back to the 1st of January 2012, new impairment tables came into force. These tables resulted in an increase in the number of people being rejected. Um, For example, in 2010, just over 35% of new claims were rejected. But by 2016, we're looking at about 75% of new claims being rejected. that's huge. Yes, that's a huge jump. Um, As well as that, there's also been an increase in the number of people who are already on the disability support pension who are being reviewed. So that they might be reviewed and their payment might be getting cancelled. Basically, we're having a situation where there's more people being rejected and there's also people who are already getting payments being cancelled because of these new rules. So that 75% includes those people as well or just the No, that's all, that's all new claimants. Oh, right. In this episode, we're focusing on the medical criteria to qualify for the DSP. Be aware that there are also non-medical criteria that needs to be met. These are around age, residence, income and asset. There are links on the podcast homepage to find out more about these. But now, let's hear from Liz about the medical criteria. Basically, a person's medical conditions need to be permanent and they need to be given at least 20 points under right. the impairment tables. A person's health problems must stop them from working for 15 hours per week or more or retraining for at least the next two years. Um, a person must also have completed a program of support unless they're exempt from that requirement. A lot of people don't even get past that first hurdle about whether their condition is permanent. And it's not that kind of common sense idea of permanent that we might use. There's quite a particular meaning under Centrelink law. Um, So to be permanent, the condition needs to be fully diagnosed, treated and stabilised and unlikely to get better with or without treatment over the next two years. Diagnosis is a common issue that we see, so people's condition hasn't been properly diagnosed um, at the time that their claim is lodged. And um, one of the big issues there um, is for people that have mental health conditions. Under the rules, a diagnosis has to be either made by a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist. Okay. So often we're talking to, to clients and they're like, we've been seeing a psychologist, but it turns out that it's a registered psychologist 
and not a clinical psychologist. Oh, right. It gets a bit tricky. And even though that, you know, it might be a fantastic counsellor and doing a great job with counselling and treatment, yes, yes. for the purpose of the Centrelink law, that diagnosis needs to have been made by the clinical psychologist with a GP or a psychiatrist. So it almost sounds like people need to get advice before they apply for DSP just to make sure they've got it all bundled together. And I right. think so. And I often do get, you know, contact by community workers asking me those questions, you know, around what the criteria are. Because often we'll find people go, okay, I've got, you know, I've got my diagnosis and then they go back and then they find out what the next criteria is. Yes. So I think it's good if people can understand what all the criteria are yes. when they're starting. about whether their condition is fully treated and stabilised. Um, so if a person has just started medication that might improve their condition or they're waiting for an operation, it's probably Centrelink going to consider that their condition is um, fully treated and stabilised okay. and permanent. So they're yes. unlikely to get past that. So if someone's got a bad knee but they're going to be getting a knee operation in six months, that condition probably you know wouldn't be considered permanent. So what what are people doing in the meantime while they're applying for this DSP? Like they're getting stabilised, they're getting what what are they living on? Um, basically, they're living on the New Start allowance. Oh, okay, yeah, All right. which um you know which which is a very low rate. I mean, it's a much lower rate of payment um, right. than the disability support pension. Um, and then the next thing is the impairment tables. And oh, this right. is really good for people to know about, yes. um, is the impairment tables. So if a person's condition is permanent, so we've gone, okay, like the condition's permanent, then Centrelink looks at whether they can get any points under the impairment tables. And a person needs to get 20 points. But they basically assess functional ability what a person can and cannot do um, yes. because of their health condition. Yeah. Um, so what we find is if we can get copies of those tables to our clients or to their community workers to take to the doctors, the doctors then know what it is that Centrelink are looking at. Look, yeah. So people often, you know, you might hear your clients talking about, oh, or 10, I've got 10 points or 20 points. It's on these tables that they're referring to. As Liz mentions in the podcast, the DSP tables and points can be quite confusing for clients, doctors and support workers. So we've provided links to the fact sheets which have been created by the National Social Security Rights Network. The tables address all different, so there's a table five is for mental health function and there's you know table two, I think that's upper limb. But if they get 20 points on one table, um, that means a person won't have to do what we call a program of support. Oh, if they have okay. the 20 points on one table, it means they have a severe medical condition. And I know this, I always feel when I talk about the disability support pension criteria, it, it's so complicated, but there's yes. some really good fact sheets available that set out this information. And our network even has one which actually, at, at, at the end of it, has a letter that someone could take in um, to their doctor with, right. with the right impairment table. Liz just mentioned that people need to have completed a program of support. Centrelink will make the referral to a job active provider that provides these programs of support close to where the person lives. People applying for DSP must complete a program of support unless they're exempt. Again, we'll have a link to a fact sheet on our homepage for more information about programs of support.
A person needs to have been with a programme of support for 18 months of the past, of the three years before the claim is made. So at least half of that time, three years yeah. prior to the claim being made. Yeah. Um, okay. Unless they're exempt from it. So there are, it is quite hard to get, but the medical conditions mean they can't improve their capacity to work, then we might be exempt um, from having to do the programme of support, but we don't really see that, that, see that happening. I mean, I had one client and she had 40 points across all the different tables, a range of conditions that were complicated, and she had to wait out the 18 months right. um, on the program before qualifying. Program support is there to show that, look, this person does have some medical conditions, but, you know, they've tried to get them into work, they've been with the program, mm. and they're unable to. My next question was, does it take long to get the DSP? Well, this is funny because when I was looking it up to come and talk to you today, <laughs> the official statistics are that it takes on average around 40 days for a decision. And I suspect that is because many claims are rejected early um, in mm. the process. Yes. But my experience is, is that, you know, it can take up to six months for the, for the first decision. Um, and then if someone's appealing, I mean, I've had clients where it's been rejected, they've gone through the appeal process for a few levels of the appeal process and it's taken two years. Having said okay. that, if you are successful at the end of the two years, you will you will get the back pay from that earlier period. So if they're on new start, they'll get some sort of gap. The, the difference the between difference. new start. Well, one thing we do find is that when people are in that period, you know, have claimed disability support pension, um, and they're on new start, or even if they haven't claimed it, they try and get exemptions from having to go along to their um, employment service provider, and we suggest they don't do that. And that's because if they if they get an exemption, it means they're not doing that program of support. Yeah. So, so people go, oh, I take in, I'll take in a medical certificate. I don't have to go to my appointments oh, with my job right. network provider. Um, but actually, that means they're not doing the program of support. So is that because people don't understand that program? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I see clients who have been like, well, I would have been going to the appointments. No one, no one told me. I thought I could just put in the medical certificates. You know. Just to clarify what Liz has just been talking about, as we've said, to get the DSP, you must complete a program of support. So it's important that people fully participate in their mutual obligation program with their job active provider. Seeking exemptions from participating by providing medical certificates will mean they haven't been doing a program of support under Centrelink guidelines. How can community or health workers help their clients if they're trying to make an application for DSP or if their DSP application is rejected? I mean, one of the things obviously that a community worker can do is to um, make sure that that person gets legal advice and understands what all the criteria are yes. and as early in the process as possible. So can a, could a worker ring you, for example, just to get their head around it first before they speak to their clients? Absolutely, and I often right. provide um, you know, community workers with the, the relevant fact sheets okay. and the impairment tables. So you can talk to workers individually, and I guess if in their workplace they saw a lot of these people, you could come out and yeah, do a, a session for the whole staff. Yeah, we, we often do that. We, yeah. we go out and speak to um, different groups yes. um, about what, what this is. What do they do then if they're working alongside you? 
Um, well, one of the first things we really need to do is if someone's claim's been rejected, like has happened with Joanne in our case study, is work out, well, why has it been rejected? Is it mm. because of all those criteria I was talking about? Is yeah. it because the condition wasn't permanent? Right. Has it to do with the points? Has it to do with the continuing inability to work? And the best way we can do that is by getting um, the job capacity assessment report that was done by Centrelink, and that's got okay. all that information in there about why the decision was made. So that's often... Um, the, the first step. Oh, so you have to actually request that from Centrelink. They don't give this to the person when they reject their No, claim. they don't. And often the letters that people get have just your claim has been rejected um, with very little information. So usually when we see a person for the first time, there's very little information about um, why that claim has been rejected. And we can look at that and go, well, okay, is some more medical evidence going to make the difference mm. um, or is really this person doesn't meet the qualification? And I think that's another key role that um, community workers is play is really managing those expectations of, mm. of our clients um, about how long the process will take yes. um, and the fact that so many claims are rejected because it, it's very disheartening. Um. So that initial advice that you do give to the client and I assume the worker could be present in that? Yeah, that happens very often and we have, we have the worker there and the worker might even help um, the person go to the medical appointment, um, you know, with the impairment tables. Well, it sounds like um, community health workers are crucial in this this space. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, another thing they can able to do is um, provide a statement in support of a claim or appeal because often we find, it, especially if a community worker works quite frequently with a client, they actually mm. might see what that person can and can't do mm. um, and the things that they need to help that person with and that can be really valuable information for the process. You were saying earlier that it really relies on professionals writing reports so even their caseworker could add to the mix. Absolutely yeah. and we, we certainly at the tribunal we, oh, we've okay. done that, um, you know, get, get um, evidence from support workers to show what okay. a person can and can't do. So Liz, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that appeal process if someone gets a letter saying their application for DSP has been rejected? Getting advice as quickly as possible um, mm. is a good idea um, and that's because um, there is appeal time limitation periods right. so an appeal needs to be lodged um, within 13 weeks. Lodging an appeal is simple as just calling up Centrelink or going into an office and saying, I want to appeal. Right. You know, it doesn't cost a person anything. It's no. you, know, you can't get into trouble for it. No. Um, but an appeal is unlikely to be successful really, usually unless there is some new evidence to put in with it, some new okay. medical evidence. And that is really where we can get involved in trying to help that person get that evidence. And so that's the, that's the first level appeal. That's to a Centrelink authorised review officer. And then if you're unsuccessful there, then a person can appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And there's two levels of appeal there. And that does that cost anything? <laughs> that doesn't cost anything. Right. And, you know, they have to, the tribunal members have to use the same law and policy as Centrelink, but they're independent of Centrelink. So, Liz, do people need to have a lawyer with them when they go to the tribunal? Yeah, well, the yeah. tribunal is really set up so people um, can represent themselves. It's quite informal. Right. Um, usually there aren't any Centrelink lawyers involved at that first level okay. appeal at the tribunal. Um, yes. But we often do go along to help people um, yes. if, if we think that they need that extra support. Liz also clarified that it is possible to attend the tribunal hearings by telephone. 
which is great for people living in regional areas. Something else that I've heard about is manifest grants from Centrelink. What are they and who are they for? Yes, so yeah, there are limited circumstances um, in which a person will be granted the disability support pension without any need to go through all that assessment process. Oh, right. Yeah, so they're fast-track claims and they cover conditions like permanent blindness, um, if a person has an intellectual disability where their IQ is less than 70, right. um, or, for example, they have a terminal illness um, and they have a life expectancy of less than two years. Right. So the department actually have a list of medical conditions um, to help decision makers decide right. um, in that area. And that means a person doesn't have to go through the whole claim process. It does go to a disability support pension processing team, right. but it doesn't have to go through these other levels of assessment. Just to recap, Liz is going to remind us about the process that people have to go through when they put in an application for DSP. I'll just mention briefly, so yes. when a person does make a claim, if it's not rejected outright, then they have to go in and have what we call a job capacity assessment. So they sit with a Centrelink medical health specialist, right. so usually like a psychologist or a rehab specialist who goes through their medical conditions and all those impairment tables. Now, if that assessor thinks the person might qualify, then the person has to go to another appointment with um, a, a Centrelink appointed doctor. Is that yeah. the same process for the manifest grants? No, no, so the manifest avoid all, all, all of those. Oh, yeah. right. And, you know, it's not like they're... It's because they've got really serious and, and, and evident health yes. conditions. Do you have any tips on how community or health workers can help their clients negotiate their activity agreements while they're on New Start to, so they're not vulnerable to breaches? It's really important that people um, have job plans that they're able to comply with. Mm. And so I think that really is about, usually in that job capacity assessment that you do, um, it'll say how much how much a person can do under right. their job plan. So, you know, whether they're able to work 21 hours a week or look for work for 21 hours a week. And it's really oh. making sure that that job plan fits what that person is able to do. Okay. And as I mentioned before, it's really, you know, sometimes people go, well, I'll just put in the medical certificate and then I don't have to go. But as I said, you really do want to encourage your clients to keep engaging. And, you know, I've had clients where maybe their job plan includes them going to keep seeing their counsellor oh. and doing things like that. That can actually be part of the job plan. Yes, yeah. And I guess if you stay engaged with your, your job activity or the, the service, it you get access to funding for other things as well. Yeah, yeah, that's courses right. Courses yeah. and equipment that might help you in a workplace and incentives for employers to take you on. Because of the low rate of new start allowance, obviously, um, we often see community workers helping clients with managing their money or being accessed yes. to other community organisations for assistance with bills and food. And, and I know at Illawarra Legal Centre you have the financial counsellors there. so um, That's right. They'd see a lot of people yep. helping them with their budgeting and living on a low income. Well, as I said just then, that you're based in Wollongong, the Illawarra Legal Centre. So do you only work with people in the Illawarra? No, we actually, um, we do, my, as I said, our job share. My colleague Ian goes down to Nara right. um, every fortnight and we also talk to people all the way down the south coast. 
Okay, so you sort of cover from Sutherland down to the border? Yeah, Eden, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll take, yeah, and, and that means that we do a lot of our advice by phone for yes. those areas, but occasionally we do get down there as well. To see people. Yeah. Um, so what if someone's not living in this area? Where would they go to speak to a welfare rights or social security lawyer? So that would be the Welfare Rights Centre in Sydney, and they, right. they, they you know basically cover all the state. That oh, we okay. don't cover. Of course, Legal Aid also. Oh, you know, of course, provide... yeah. Legal Aid have a government law team and they assist people with um, social security law as well. Exactly. They're based in Sydney as well. And really, I, I think both uh, Legal Aid and community legal centres will talk to people initially about Centrelink issues, social security issues, and help them, and, and they can tap into you. Absolutely, as well. yeah. That's right. So there's lots of referring going on between. Legal aid, community legal centres. Yeah, work very cooperatively. Mm-hmm. So I think if people want to just make contact with their local free legal service, whether it's legal aid or yeah. uh, a community legal centre to talk about a social security issue, Centrelink mm-hmm. issue, that's a good place to start. And I mean, for anyone outside New South Wales, on that um, National Social Security Rights Network website um, is a list of all the places around Australia that oh, provide, okay. um, you know, social security advice yes and of course that's going to be consistent because the thing we haven't said is centrelink is australia it's oh, australia that's right. wide law <laughs> that's right it's not specific <laughs> it's to yourself yeah, yeah it's commonwealth law so yeah it doesn't really matter where you go it'll that's be right, the same, same advice but of course your local services will know who's your local players in town because all the job active providers are different services and that's correct and one thing we have is we also have um you know here in the Illawarra good relationships with the local um, Centrelink officers and, and we do have direct phone lines so when we call up to find out something about, you know, a client, um, we don't have the, the long waiting times. Oh, that's good to know. So you've negotiated that with the local Centrelink office. That's right. A direct number. Yes. Oh, well, even better reason to call you. You've got the back phone. We've got you the back phone. <laughs> you can get directly through. Um, and I'll, something I will mention is if people aren't sure where their local free legal service is, law access is always a good place to start. The people there will know the, the phone numbers. And we'll have the number for law access on the page for this podcast. Uh, okay, so finally, Liz, as you know, this podcast is for community workers. So what would you say are your one or two key messages you'd like to leave with them if they have a client who needs help with getting or keeping their disability support pension? The two key things. One is, as I mentioned before, that really managing the client's expectations um, around how difficult it is to get the the disability support pension and kind of how long the process is. And I think the other thing is making sure that that person gets some legal advice um, about their particular case, you know, to find out. What, what they might need or, or maybe the fact that the person isn't going to meet the qualification yes, criteria. Yeah. No, I just that I am really pleased to be here, as I said before, really value the relationships that um, I have with community and health mm. workers um, and how we're able to work together, you know, to achieve good outcomes for clients. Well, thanks very much, Liz, and thanks everyone for listening and we'll say bye for now. Law for Community Workers On The Go is brought to you by Legal Aid New South Wales. Our aim is to help community workers, health workers and anyone else who works to support people in their community know about the laws that affect their clients and the services that are out there that can best help. 
Now there's really only one way we can make sure that that information is relevant and helpful to your work and that's with your help. So if you have any feedback for us or maybe your clients keep asking you the same thing and you just want to know more about that topic, then please get in touch with us. Uh, the email address is cle at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. Make sure you follow our podcast channel on either iTunes or the Podbean app. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our Law for Community Worker alerts to find out what webinars and podcasts are coming up. You can subscribe to our alerts by going to the Legal Aid New South Wales website, hitting the tab News and Media, and then just follow the links. Until next time, thanks again from the CLE branch here at Legal Aid New South Wales.